Welcome to the Film Scene Podcast. All right. I'm so pleased to have Rob Garver, the director of What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kale on the Film Scene Podcast. Welcome, Rob. Thanks, Steph. Glad to be here. Um, so Rob made a really great documentary about the legendary film critic Pauline Kael, who was really influential in a lot of ways and, and instrumental into propelling the careers of a lot of filmmakers, amongst many other things. I, I guess I'll let you give a little bit of an introduction about the film. Sure. Well, um, the film took me four years to make, and um, I really didn't realize that that, that would uh, happen when I started making the film, and I probably would not have made the film. But um, in the end, you know, it became a, a much better film. Um, there's a whole story on, you know, how it got made. But, you know, the original inspiration was just that I had read Pauline as, as a young person in college. And, um, you know, that was when she was still writing in the 80s. And um, I, you know, to read her as a young person, and I'd started making my own films in high school. And, you know, reading Pauline was so different from reading a newspaper critic or really any other of the critics that I'd read at that time. She she didn't write like a film critic. She wrote like a really kind of more like a filmmaker because she saw films from all different angles and she had great insight into uh, what movies were about. And she got right to the meat of what a, a movie was about. And sometimes she went off on tangents. And so you know, that's really why my film is called what it's called because she really, she wrote more like an artist who was a writer first and a, and a critic second. So I came up with the idea right about in 2014, we premiered at Telluride in 2018. And in those four years, you know, it was just a whole long process of me, uh, um, you know, going through getting in touch with her daughter, um, asking for permission to make the film or a blessing anyway, and not getting it. And then kind of going ahead anyway, and uh, keeping in touch with with Gina James is, is Pauline's daughter and her only her only child. So she was the executor of the estate. Um, but she, it was a whole was, process from she there. She was great in the, the film too. She was such a great presence having her as a subject. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, she's and she's very different from her mother too, and you know, in in um, unusual ways, I guess. If if you see the film, you'll know what I'm talking about. But you know, the film I, I really started out wanting to make a movie about uh, her writing, and I it was an idea that was a creative idea of trying to make her sentences come alive in a movie. It really wasn't about telling the story of her life or you know taking a position on her point of view about certain films or not. I mean, I know a lot of people can't stand Pauline Kael uh, because of her positions on films and because of, you know, um, some other things as well. I mean, what they see is not maybe, um, you know, complete honesty in, in, in some instances, but um, for me, and, and my film tries to include some of that, but uh, my film is really a, a, an appreciation of her with caveats, I guess, but um, I wanted to make a film that brought her sentences alive and was cinematic. So, you know, I decided, um, you know, after kind of going through her work, sort of the rough, the rough uh, scenes that I wanted to include in the film, which obviously includes some of her reviews. And I, and I also thought, you know, I didn't want to uh, have words on the screen. I wanted to have, you um, it be all spoken. And when I got to the point where I realized I had to include more of Pauline's biography, because, you know, obviously people want to know who she was as a person and what kind of a life she lived. I kind of continued that creative idea and decided that I would try to use film clips from history and from the era that she lived in to try to uh, tell her own story. So my film uses about 150 different film clips and that's part of why it took so long as well is, is to go through those clips and, and um, films and try to find pieces that really fit with the film and really cut together well. And I can imagine it was hard getting the rights to certain things. Yeah. I mean, the clips were, the movie clips themselves were used fair use and, you know, everybody has to do that still, although it's, it's becoming a little bit easier to use those, but I had to go through a fair use law firm and, you know, log my film kind of frame by frame and 
you know, some of the some of the choices they didn't accept, some they some they did. I had to make um, some some changes. But um, anyway, that was part of my creative idea, and and you know, the film itself was going to be more about the the uh, work than the life of Pauline Kael. In the end, it turns out to be about half and half. You know, I'm I was happy with the result. I think, even though it did take so long. Yeah, I think I think you pulled off a nice combination of. I, I imagine that with the editing coming from an editing background, you know, the editing documentaries in general is such a challenging part, and finding the narrative in the edit, I could imagine was was pretty tricky. Um, but I think you did a good job. Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I you know after we shot the interviews, we did about we shot about forty interviews. Um, you know, some of her friends and other critics and filmmakers like Tarantino and David O. Russell and Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, I was just going to say, you got some pretty impressive people to appear in the documentary, like Tarantino and David O. Russell and Paul Schrader. Was that really difficult? Did it take a lot of attempts to get people like that? With some, it did, yeah. But, I mean, overall, I think people wanted to talk about her because... You know, I guess it's it's kind of a situation where she talked about them for so long without any uh, ability for them to reply. And maybe, you know, that was part of it is that, you know, it was their chance to to talk back to the critic in a way. But, you know, David O. Russell and Tarantino, they they didn't. Pauline retired in 91, so they were never reviewed by her. But, you know, they read her as a kid like I did, and they were inspired by her and, you know, David. Russell showed up with a big anthology of her writing with bookmarks in it and things he wanted to talk about. And, um, but that's amazing. Um, yeah. It was clear yeah. how influential she was to both of those filmmakers. Yeah. I, I think, I think so. Um, but you know, it's, it's hard to tell. I think I did ask Tarantino, you know, do you think your, your writing was directly influenced uh, by Pauline's writing? And, he tells this nice story, which is in the film, about this kind of one line she wrote from her her review of Band of Outsiders, the Godard film. And uh, it's it's really interesting because the way he describes it, it's kind of like a light turned on of the kind of film that he wanted to make. So, yeah, that that's interesting. But I think, you know, overall, Pauline was was just an inspiration. And it's hard to, you know, it's hard to understand it if you haven't read her. But you know, that's, that's what I hope my film can do is kind of bring that, that sense of her, her absolute love for movies and for really, for all art. She loved music and theater and uh, she was a voracious theater goer, concert goer. In her later days, she watched television, you know, she liked The Sopranos and Sex and the City and you know, she just had very wide, broad tastes and, and she was extremely well read as a young person in her 20s. And Pauline was born in 1919. So, you know, her movie going sort of spanned the era fr- all the way from silent movies, all the way to really the digital era. Um, yeah, but, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. But the foundation of, of her writing and of her career really was books. You know, we spent a couple of weeks at her archives in Indiana at the Lilly Library, which is actually where Peter Bogdanovich and John Ford and Orson Welles also have their archives. I found, you know, these letters that she wrote in her 20s and in in college to a couple of close friends. And, you know, you can just see her interest was was, um, so much about books and poetry. And she read kind of all the great literature. And she must have been just a very fast reader because she just kind of ticks off the authors that she that she read and she wouldn't, you know, when she, when she found a book she liked by an author, she would kind of read all of their books. And that was also kind of in the thirties and forties when she started really appreciating movies. I think, I, I don't think she could have, she really, I don't think she did see what she would become. She didn't really know. She tried a lot of different things early on, yeah. but eventually almost fell into movies. I thought that was really interesting too. That yeah, it, how how you went into her background of attempting to be a playwright, and then she kind of just stumbled into film criticism, and you know something just clicked. Yeah, well, the, what clicked was somebody wrote her a check. <laughs> you know, um, she uh, somebody overheard her talking about the Chaplin movie Limelight, which she really didn't like, and um, 
hired her to, to write the con review of City of um, Limelight. It was for a magazine called City Lights in San Francisco, which is where she was living. He hired another writer to write a favorable review of it. And um, so uh, that, that was kind of the beginning. And from there she went to, uh, she wrote freelance and then she, she worked on KPFA in Berkeley for free for a long time and um, all the while trying to you know write spec pieces and write essays and uh, submit them to film publications and it really wasn't until she was um, past 40 that she got a regular job um, and writing for mainstream magazines in the 60s that's amazing man to me that's really inspiring actually i like uh, stories of late bloomers (laughs) yeah she was she really was. But, um, you know, she her timing was great because I think, you know, if she had uh, started in as a um, as a kind of a major critic at a younger period, she wouldn't have had that experience. And um, also she was hired by The New Yorker in 68, which was, you know, just when American movies were starting to come alive with the young directors. And it was also you know, the period of where European films were still, you know, really interesting. And, you know, she was there and she wrote about all that. So um, the American new wave and coming off the end of that French new wave and and that sort of thing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty, pretty remarkable for sure. And, And to me, even though she was, she was mostly before, you know, she was before my time and I, I, I had learned about her since, even though I wasn't really familiar with her writing, but um, from what what I gather, my take on Pauline Kael was that she was to film criticism what kind of the Ramones or the Sex Pistols were to music. She was sort of like unprecedented. And even though she predated punk rock, she had that kind of almost sensibility to being a film critic. I don't know if that's accurate or not. But Yeah, I mean, in, in the way that the, that the Ramones or the Sex Pistols, I guess, were kind of in your face a little bit, you know? And yeah. I mean, it's hard to say Pauline was in your face, but she was. And for a lot of people, I think they didn't like her because she was in your face. But she was also extremely smart and extremely um, um, talented at expressing kind of the smallest details and and expressing herself intellectually and emotionally. And she just had such a a span and a range that, you know, it's hard to compare it to music, which is so kind of instinctual, you know, in its, in its appeal, but, you know, to read one of her great essays or, or long reviews is, is like kind of hearing a good pop song because she writes with these rhythms um, that seem musical, you know, and you really remember what she says and you, and you can feel her, you know, you can, like any good writer, you can feel her rhythms, you can feel who she is. And, um, the thing about Pauline is you would read her and sometimes, you know, her review would actually be much better than the movie. And um, there's um, a guy that we interviewed. It didn't make it into the film, but he told me that he got so fed up, I guess, with Pauline because he disagreed with her so much that he canceled his subscription to the New Yorker. And then um, a couple of weeks later, he realized he was, I guess, addicted more or less, but you know, he, he was so curious as to what she was writing that she went, he went to a newsstand and picked up the New Yorker and, and started reading her review right there at the newsstand. That's amazing. (laughs) So, um, I mean, she had that kind of appeal, you know? Yeah. And I love when she says that one does not need to rationalize one's instincts. And I, and I think that's such an important point because I've always felt about film critics that, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them, it, it seems like they have to justify why they like something or not, almost from like an intellectual standpoint, because I guess they're, you know, essentially being judged by their peers or other critics. Or Meanwhile, let's say you have somebody like Tarantino who could say, well, I love Abel Ferrara's King of New York, and he doesn't have to justify why he likes such a movie or not. And she almost she almost seemed to kind of be, be that sort of person. Like she either liked something or she didn't, but she didn't almost feel like she had to go with the status quo. I agree. Yeah. I mean, part of her um, approach to to writing was 
you know, the opposite of the critic who says, well, I'm going to try to be objective and I'm going to try to weigh the film on its merits and, and, you know, judge its story compared to the, the classic films that, that told these stories and try to, you know, check off the boxes, acting, directing, cinematography. I mean, that was maybe more Andrew Saris's approach who she sort of, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't her so much who was competing with him or him with her, but that's the way other writers kind of built it up to be this competition and, and uh, dislike of, of each other, Pauline Kale versus Andrew Saris. But Andrew Saris was a more objective a critic. And he, he was a very good writer too, but his approach was very different from Pauline's. Pauline was kind of famous for only seeing a movie once. And she always said that she only, she never saw a movie twice. And uh, I think she was talking specifically about her working life, not her, you know, post-retirement life. But her approach was based on, you know, I'm going to watch a film and I'm going to try to share with the reader exactly what I felt and thought about the movie. I'm not going to going to intellectualize it. I'm not going to compare it to a theory. I'm not going to compare it um, to what other people think. I'm just going to write what I felt and put that down on paper. And, you know, more or less, that's what she did. She wrote some very long pieces that were thoughtful and about different ideas and different movies. But when she wrote a straight review at the New Yorker, sometimes she was on a tight deadline. And so she had to get it off right away. But she really believed, and, and this you even see in her really early writing, is that, you know, movie reviewing isn't isn't an objective exercise. It's it's subjective. And it's she understood that the way someone else saw a movie is not going to be the way that she saw it. But she believed she was right, having said that. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean she wasn't um she wasn't shy about that. Um yeah, she had very but, bold opinions and 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 that was definitely very clear. And I like how yes. how how you depicted uh David Russell mentioning that um that, you know, films are subjective, you know, like I could love 2001 A Space Odyssey. Maybe David O. Russell doesn't love it. And each opinion could be valid because it's an opinion. Right. Right. And I think a lot of people read, read her and, you know, thought, well, this is this is garbage. I mean, she's wrong about this. She didn't see this or, you know, she missed that or and what is she thinking? I mean, usually it was the other way around where you would read something of hers and you would you would she would make you see things you didn't see and tarantino said that in my in my movie and and that's something so many people i think felt is that you'd watch a movie and you think okay i didn't really like that and didn't get very much out of it and then you'd read pauline's review and and she saw this whole other thing going on in it and you know maybe you agreed with her that it was there or maybe not but that was you know she was staking her claim or just, you know, she was putting herself out there. So it, it was, it, I think it was easy to criticize her, but at the same time, you have to respect her because she did put herself out there and she wasn't apologizing for her opinion. Um, and she, you know, she was a very thoughtful person. It, it's not like if, if she had an opinion about, um, you know, a movie you liked uh, that she was so far out there that, you know, you, you couldn't read it. Her, her reviews always made sense. And she, she was, um, she doesn't get credit for it, but I mean, lo logically she was a great writer. Her, you know, if she liked something, she could really back it up and say why. And, and she would relate it to maybe films that came beforehand, or she could talk about the ideas in the film from a psychological point of view or from what was going on in the culture. And, you know, that automatically made her her writing so much more interesting to to read about. She definitely had uh, she was not shy about telling David Lean about what she what she thought about his work. No, she was nasty. She was mean to David Lean. And, you know, she, I mean, Pauline was human. She had she had a lot of, of moments, I think, where, you know, she she could be personal. Um, I wonder what I wonder why that was so personal i guess she just had strong opinions such strong opinions about his films that uh it came it came across that way yeah you know she didn't like um 
you know, when when that that was a, a, a review, that was the at the time that Ryan's daughter came out, which a lot of critics didn't like, but it was a very kind of, you know, it was 1971 and it was a very uh, staid kind of conservative David Lean type epic um, that was sort of out of sync with the times uh, in a way. Gotcha. And I think, and I think David Lean probably at that time late in his career felt like, you know, there were all these young guns coming up and he was the old, um, the old gunfighter in town who, you know, maybe wasn't as fast as everybody else, but, um, you know, she, I think she was unfair to him. She liked his, some of his early films. She liked his Dickens adaptations, great expectations and Oliver twist. And, uh, she liked some things about Lawrence of Arabia, but, um, you know, I, I think she didn't have much patience for, for large kind of, um, pictorial movies and big ideas that sort of advertise themselves. And I think she sort of saw lean a little bit in that vein. Yeah. You know, that was actually something that to me was super interesting about watching your documentary that I, I never really thought about, I guess I never thought about the fact that when I guess television had prompted films to go bigger and bigger and more epic just to kind of, you know, contrast themselves from television. And I never really mm-hmm. fully considered that. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that was even before, I think, in the 50s when Cinemascope came out, you know, right. there were those big Cinemascope movies that that were, you know, c- kind of costume dramas or just not very good films on their own. But um, she, uh, you know, she... She knew what was happening in the culture and she, um, you know, she she found things that she liked, I think, in, in each era. And when television really came on, I guess, in the six in the 60s and 70s, um, she she wrote a, actually a famous essay called Movies on Television. And she wrote, you know, all about the differences of, of seeing a movie versus seeing it on television and kind of the psychological differences and you know, for, for better or worse. Um, That's something I've talked a lot about on this podcast. I do think there's certain films that really need to be watched on a large screen. You know, actually I think 2001 is, is an example of one of them. I had tried to watch that movie so many times on TV and I just never really got pulled into it until I got the pleasure of watching it at the IFC center once on a, on a giant screen and, it was, it was a few years ago, and I was really, it was just like a whole other experience. Yeah, it is. I mean, there are a lot of movies like that, and I think comedies as well, like a good comedy. Why would you want to be laughing alone in your living room? You know? <laughs> That's true. It's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you want to share that. And the same with horror, good horror movies, you know? I, I think, um, the, you know, she, and she wrote about that. And, I, you know, I included that in my film is the social aspect of movies. She was always very sensitive to what was going on in the audience around her. I thought that was really cool, actually, because, yeah, that that kind of, you know, film is to me such a communal experience. I mean, sadly, this last year, it hasn't been that way. It's been the first time in my life where I haven't really been to the movies for a lot of us, you know. But Yeah, um, yeah. But it's so it, important. It's, it's true. It's true. Film festivals are important. Well, sp- speaking of which, how did it go on the festival route? I mean, Telluride's a great festival to premiere at. Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, Telluride was, we went to, I think, 50 festivals around the world. I didn't go to all of them, but it, the film played, and uh, I went to maybe 15 of them. But um, nice. Telluride was, was fantastic, and it's just such an intimate uh, place and a beautiful place and you know full of great film people but we also got to uh, premiere internationally at Berlin and then I also got to go to Israel for Dakaviv and St. Petersburg um, nice. Russia and then um, you know a whole a whole bunch of uh, festivals here so you know it was obviously it's a movie about movies and uh, a lot of people know Pauline already and if not, you know, there were people who really wanted to, you know, learn about her a little bit. So um, we, we had great success. I, I thought that ending sequence was, with with all the film titles, was super cinematic. I really, really loved that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure sure a lot of people did. That 
yeah, that was fun. I mean, for people who don't know, I just used uh, kind of uh, five frames of each title card from every movie that's in my movie. And uh, it's about 150 different movies and they sort of flash by. And uh, and then I at the very end, you know, I have the proper credit and legal uh, legal credit at the end. That's so, that's so funny. I, I knew it had to be less than eight frames. So it was five frames. I guess that's enough for it to register in somebody's mind. Yeah, I mean, it might it might have been less or more for some. There, there were some like that had movement, and so I, you know, I sped up. Like, there's a Nashville title. I think I sped up, and um, the Conquerors, a few of them. But yeah, generally it was about five frames. <laughs> nice. And this was your uh, first feature, or this was your first film, or first feature? Yeah, I've made a lot of short films, um, but this was the first feature, and you know, the first thing that, uh, you know, I really got, had success in the the festivals and got distributed. Nice, man. And I guess, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, did you, did you study film in, in college or? Yep, I did. I went to Northwestern in Chicago, which, um, has a good film school. It's not very well known, but it's, it's known more for its theater department or was, but, um, I studied film there and, uh, you know, over the years I, I, just kind of was pounding away, knocking on doors, writing scripts, making my own short films, showing them where I could uh, at small festivals. And uh, I got a couple on, on television, worked other jobs to, to make a living. And I uh, worked as a writer and a, a reporter for a few years. And uh, I ghost wrote an autobiography for an actress and just did a lot of different things, but always kind of kept my uh, film projects going and trying to break through. And uh, so, you know, it was very satisfying to have this film get out there because um, ultimately I made it for myself, not not because I was such a great Pauline lover or fan. It was, you know, it was really just the, the creative idea of wanting to try to tell somebody's story who was a writer uh, cinematically and kind of make that, make that work as a movie. So, I mean, it was, it was just really difficult because there was no, it's my film is all archival. You know, I wasn't able to go out and shoot 20 minutes of Verite footage, which would have been so much easier in the end. um, I think I, you know, I found the right pieces and I, you know, I found things like the original um, clippings of her, um, when she was fired or, or hired and kind of use those with music and, and voiceover to, to try to, you know, really tell that, that phase of her life cinematically and, and um, photos that we found in the archives. And then that Gina gave me um, and Gina, you know, was very hesitant at first to get involved because she knew a lot of people didn't like her mother. And once, uh, once something is out there, she hears about the criticism or, you know, of her. And she's, she's very introverted, unlike her mother, who was very extroverted. Yeah. Uh, and, but eventually Gina had these home movies from the late fifties of Pauline in Berkeley. And she hosted these parties with other writers and film people and critics. And, uh, you know, they're all in this house in Berkeley and drinking and smoking and it's just great stuff. And I was able to use that and kind of bookend the film, but yeah, um, that was really cool. Yeah, thank you. To to make a film that wasn't boring, you know, that was really what my challenge was. Yeah, and I, one key thing that you present in the film is, I guess, uh, when she had written her book, when the lights go down, her New Yorker colleague Renata Adler published the eight thousand word review, called it jarringly piece by piece, line by line, and without interruption, worthless. I thought that was uh, was essentially a hit piece. And yeah. Was was that something? Were you old enough to remember that when that came out, or were you following her career when that came out? I wasn't really following it that closely. I don't think because that was in the New York Review of Books, and that's not something I would have read at that point. But um, she, it was a hit piece, and I think David O. Russell said, you know, it was it was in a way it was her um, trying to out Pauline Pauline. Um, I mean, it's a very entertaining piece and very funny. And she kind of uh, takes pieces of Pauline's writing and sort of 
some of it's out of context, I think, but, you know, she kind of tries to find these similarities of things that Pauline is obsessive about, and she kind of makes her case that way. But, you know, Renata Adler was a very different kind of a writer and, a, and had a different approach. She was a critic herself, a movie critic for the New York Times, I think, for a few years. But she's, um, and, and I spoke to Renata on the phone. She's still alive. She's in her 80s. And uh, she was very nice. She allowed me to use her writing. She didn't want to be interviewed. But, you know, she stands by it even today. And usually whenever she's mentioned or Pauline is mentioned in a an article, that, that will come up. But, you know, Pauline did not respond to it. Um, I think she was hurt by it, according to Gina. She wrote for another 10 years after that. And, um, you know, she was who she was. She didn't, she didn't change her approach. She couldn't, I think. That was the way that she saw the world and saw movies. And uh, that was uh, who she was. Nice. Yeah, I, th- I think it was depicted in a really intriguing way. Thanks. Before we move on to our next portion of the podcast, how could people follow along with the film? Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. It's on iTunes. Um, it's also, we just premiered on TCM a couple of weeks ago. And uh, they're going to, they licensed the film for six years. So it should be playing occasionally on TCM. And well, that's um, pretty cool. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great home for it because they, you know, they show a lot of the movies that I have clips of in my, in my movie. <laughs> nice. But, um, but yeah, we played on, um, you know, f- the festivals all over the world. And uh, um, so, yeah, Amazon and iTunes right now. And then, you know, we premiered a year ago at Christmas at uh, Film Forum in New York. And then we played about 40 cities. And um, so, you know, unfortunately, when COVID came in the middle of March the, uh, last year, um, the theatrical was what wasn't quite finished, but it was almost finished. So we were actually sort of fortunate because we got most of our theatrical in. But um, yeah, we had a good run. That's good that you had some screenings that people were able to see it before the pandemic hit. Yes. All right. So now we're going to move on to the second portion of the podcast in which we discuss two of your favorite movie scenes of all time. And I did ask Rob these questions ahead of time. So... So let's get into it. And okay. I, I think the first one is The Abyss, which is obviously the 1989 James Cameron sci-fi movie. For those that have never seen it, it's it's about an American submarine that sinks in the Caribbean and a U, U.S. search and recovery team that works with a platform crew racing against Soviet vessels to recover the boat. Deep in the ocean, they encounter something unexpected. And I guess, tell us about the scene that really resonated with you. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, the mo- the movie itself I liked up until about the last twenty minutes, and I think if, if people have seen the movie, um, they know what I'm talking about. And if they haven't seen the movie, I I don't want to spoil it. But- well, you know what? Spoiler alert! <laughs> if you guys haven't <laughs> seen the movie, stop this podcast right now. If we're gonna yeah. ruin the abyss for you, if you've never seen it. <laughs> okay. Well, so- I guess yeah. I guess it's it's old enough now that it's not like it's a new movie. But anyway, the film stars Ed Harris and. Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. In the movie, they play um, engineers working for an oil company, I believe. And they're down there trying to help the Navy SEAL guy and, and their team try to recover this, this submarine. And there's, there's something underneath the ocean, deep under the ocean in the abyss, some kind of a mysterious force, something they don't understand. So they're down there to try to uh, figure it out. And... Um, what happens is that one of the submarines becomes damaged. They can't get it back operating and get back to the surface. And um, Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio are in it. And they're running out of air. And they have to get to this other platform that I think is part of the, the um, I don't know if it's the oil rig, but it's a, it's another another ship or underwater platform that they can swim to where there's air. Um, so the, the situation is they only have one oxygen um, respirator. And so they have to make this swim through the water, but it's too far distance 
uh, for them to make it without air. So they realize only one can have the respirator and they decide what they have to do is that one of them has to basically die, has to, has to let themselves drown. And the other person with the respirator will take their body, swim about 30 seconds or a minute, however long it is to this other uh, platform where they can go inside where there's air. And then the one with the oxygen will have to revive the person who let themselves drown. So that's what they do. He decides he's going to take the oxygen. She, she's going to let her lungs fill up with water and drown. She does. Uh, he takes her body. They swim about a minute or two minutes, maybe through the water. They get to the platform. They go inside where there's air. He lays her out. He starts to give her CPR. And um, he's, you know, he's giving her breaths and he's giving her compressions on her chest and she's not responding. And it goes on for, you know, uh, two, three, four minutes. Um, and he's, he's pounding her, her chest and he's starting to cry and he's screaming at her. And the backstory is they, they were married and they were put together on this mission um, sort of by chance, but um, they still have feelings for each other. And over the course of the film, um, they, they grow a little closer, even though they're still fighting. But when, when it comes to this, um, he's desperate to revive her. And, you know, he, he ends up just banging on her chest and saying, you've never given up on anything in your life. Don't, don't, don't give up now. And, and um, it's just, it's so powerful. It's just one of those, those scenes that I just never forgot because I rarely cry in movies. And I just remember my eyes filling up and it was, um, it was just such a powerful moment. It is a really powerful moment from watching the scene again. I had seen the film when I was a really young kid when it came out. And so I didn't rem remember it so well, but watching yeah. it again now, it was actually really impressive. Number one, what James Cameron just pulled off just on a technical standpoint with that film in a lot of ways. Yes. But yes, that was an emotionally hard hitting scene for sure. And I also love in cinema for some reason where, where somebody's just so relentless and they're just, you know, they'll stop at nothing. And that's, that's what Ed Harris uh, portrayed. Like even when everybody else wanted to give up, he was just, just willed it to happen. Yeah. I love him as an actor too. He's such a great, he's just all, all there, you know, yeah. he hasn't been in movies enough. I mean, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross and, yeah. and, and Pollock, you know, the, those films just are so strong because of him. I know they're, He's he's fantastic. Yeah, and, so and I liked actually there was uh, there's a scene earlier in the film that was almost some foreshadowing to this scene in some ways where Ed Harris's character throws his wedding ring after they have an argument. He throws it in the toilet and there's like all this blue liquid in the toilet, but then he fishes it out with his hand and his hand turns blue. And so then after the scene where he revives her you could see in the next scene where like he's holding her you could still see a little bit of blue in his hand from like that earlier scene which <laughs> i thought was really cool oh that is i don't remember that and it, yeah. it was just a cool way to, i just love in cinema where there's just there's very visual ways of telling the story absolutely yeah absolutely and and um yeah the the ending almost ruined the movie for me but uh it happens um, sometimes. It, it didn't have to be, you know, it was such a good story. And it, he just, I think he tried for too much. It's sort of it, the, the minute you see this huge thing rising up out of the ocean, you think, oh, we, this is like close encounters, the mothership. And uh, I mean, uh, that's, I think, what it, what it seemed to be to me. But, um, you yeah. know, it, one, of those, one of those cases, I think, maybe just reaching a little too far. Yeah, that's how I felt about in the movie Interstellar when Matthew McConaughey's character jumped into the black hole. Um, to me, that was, you know, it was a bridge too far for me, but I loved Interstellar in general. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, movies are tough, tough to make. And <laughs> they are. I think Christopher Nolan kind of get gets carte blanche to do what he wants and, uh, um, I haven't seen Tenet yet. But, I haven't um, seen it yet either. I definitely want to see it though, because I'm I'm definitely a 
fan of his work. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, um, yeah. So, so that was, you know, that was just a scene that, you know, and that's the kind of scene I think that is, that you would never see in a Christopher Nolan film. I mean, for all of Christopher Nolan's talents, you know, that's a scene that was just, you know, they, they stayed with it. They didn't cut away from it. It was a scene that had, you know, foreshadowing and built to a climax. And, um, you know, I, I love scenes that, you know, take their time to build and, you know, attention spans have become so much shorter now that um, I think that kind of movie making is, is just more rare. Um, I was thinking about but, the same thing and kind yeah. of, I, I totally agree and kind of segueing into the next film, Dr. Strangelove and watching that again. And you know, that's, that's obviously a classic masterpiece, but even in, in Strangelove, there's so many, there's so many like oneers, like a, a certain shot where Kubrick will hold on that shot for a long time in ways that somebody else would be tempted to cut nowadays and you know cut to a reversal or or or, or whatever you know yeah but i think that it's it's something that's impactful for sure yeah i mean strange love is you know a movie that kind of cuts between three different scenarios you know and during the film you have the the president and and um his advisors in the war room then you have mandrake and the the colonel or the captain um who's actually the one who's instigating this whole nuclear attack on Russia. And then you have Slim Pickens as the, as the captain on the, the B-52 that's being sent to bomb Russia. And uh, Slim Pickens but, was great. <laughs> I yeah, thought he was really, really good. He was. He wasn't even the, the, um, the first actor hired. I forgot who the first actor was, but he couldn't do it for whatever reason. And uh, they got Slim Pickens, who I just think is perfect. That famous line where he says, you know, he finds the uh, the emergency kit and it includes condoms and, you know, I guess it's in case the, the plane would crash and they had to survive on their own. So it includes all the food, water and a knife and, and condoms is one of the things that's in the kit. And he says, he says, a feller could have a pretty good time in Vegas with this. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and it came out, the movie, or it was being shot when JFK was assassinated. And the original line in the script was, uh, a feller could have a pretty good time in Dallas with this stuff. And they had to cut the, out Dallas and, re, and, um, and dub over Vegas wow. because of the assassination. That's an interesting piece of trivia. And, and also yeah. just a testament to it how ahead of his time Kubrick was. I mean, that's something that could, you know, be said today and it's just as relevant, but in the 1960s, it, it, you know, I think was ahead of his time. For sure. Yeah. But, um, the, the scene that I, that I picked was the scene in the war room with, uh, Peter Sellers as, as president. Um, I think his name is Merton Muffley. Or am I thinking of something else? Anyway, He's got a he's got a silly name, but he's um, he's the president of the United States and he's sitting around this huge round table with uh, his military chiefs and his advisors. And there's a big board behind them that shows the progress of these planes headed to Russia. And so everything is, you know, very urgent because they've got to make decisions on whether to call back the planes or not. The scene is that he, he picks up the phone his red phone, even though it's in black and white, it's, uh, and, and he calls the Russian premier, whose name is Dmitri. And uh, there's this long scene of his conversation, which is just one-sided. You don't hear what the Russian premier is saying. You only hear what the president, Peter Sellers, is saying. And um, it just, it's just, it's such a great example of good writing because you, you have a complete sense of uh, this president of Russia and that he's number one, drunk, and number two, you know, not taking the whole thing very seriously. And, um, you know, the first thing Peter Sellers says, I think, is, can you turn the music down a little? <laughs> and... <laughs> You know, Peter the, Peter Sellers as the president, that character is written to be kind of 
maybe they were comparing it to Adlai Stevenson, I guess, who I think he ran against Eisenhower in 56, maybe, but um, just as a kind of sort of pacifist liberal type of, of character who just sort of bends over backwards to be nice. And, you know, he's, he's calling the Russian premier to actually try to stop the world from being destroyed, to stop this nuclear war. He's, he's trying to break it to him lightly that the plane has been sent or planes have been sent to bomb Russia, the Soviet Union. And he says something like, well, what happened was um, one of our, one of our colonels, he went, well, he went a little funny in the head and he did a funny thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did, Dimitri. If you let me finish, Dimitri. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm interested in what you have to say, Dimitri. Yeah, yes, I like you, Dimitri. And it gets into this like it's almost like their boyfriend and girlfriend. And he's, you know, it's, the absurdity of it is just, you know, the first time you see it is just so funny and so spot on. And then, you know, when you learn that the film was originally set out to be a drama that Kubrick and his writers were adapting. I uh, can't think of the name of it, but it was a, it was a novel that was about this scenario of nuclear war starting. And I think at some point Kubrick decided that. It was it based really, off the book Red Alert by Peter Red George. Alert. But yeah, it was right. a drama. It was, it was intended at first to be a drama until Kubrick saw, I guess, the, the whole absurdity. Of yes. It. Yes, and then um, then he he and his writers t took it in a completely different, absurd direction, and uh, you know he was he was right. Kubrick was right because they did actually make a movie of Red Alert as a drama, and nobody remembers it, you know. And what Kubrick did with that story was to really just to make it his own. You know, it, it's just completely absurd. How can you make a, a serious drama about the end of the world? I'd rather just just uh, see something like that and laugh and realize, well, you know, we better get our shit together or something like this might happen. But, you know, I'm, I'm glad that Kubrick made one real out-and-out -out comedy because he was, you know, he made, he mostly, most of his films, almost all his films really were dramas except for, Strange Love and Lolita, I guess. But um, yeah, he was. It, it, it's actually pretty incredible. Of he tackled several different genres that really. I mean, he made a horror film with The Shining. Yeah, I guess most of his movies were dramas, but this was a comedy, and it was pretty amazing. It's like Cooper could do anything. Yeah, that's why he was. Yeah, the, I mean, he, he was the goat, a, the greatest of all time. Yeah, one of them. I <laughs> yeah, mean, for sure. Pauline wasn't that crazy about him, but uh, I mean, I think she she liked some of his films and and others. I think she thought that he was a megalomaniac and uh, and that his ego was too much in his movies. But I, I'm a fan, you know. It, maybe because oh, me and too. I I bec become I became more of a fan even after becoming a filmmaker. What he accomplished was just like, man, how did he do that? <laughs> just that feeling yeah. of like, how did he do that? <laughs> exactly. He he did. Yeah. I mean, I don't like all his films, but, you know, Lolita and Strange Love and uh, Paths of Glory. Paths of Glory is really one of my favorites that I can I can watch many times because I, I just I so enjoy that. And that was really his first big movie. Yeah. But uh, that's that's a great drama that has a lot of humor in it as well. Great movie as well. Yeah, I, li I like m most of them. Actually, Lolita is one that I didn't get into, but I also saw it when I was a lot younger. So there's certain yeah. films that even Strange Love, I, I have more of an appreciation for it watching it now than when I first, when I was you know 19 years old. I don't think I fully appreciated it. Right. Well, when Kubrick made Lolita, it was 1960, I think, and it was you know still hard to show a lot of the things that they needed to show. I think for that movie, I mean, they made it again in the eighties or nineties, I think with Jeremy sure. Irons. And I still, I don't enjoy that one as much as the Kubrick, but I think if Kubrick had made it 10 or 15 years later, he would have been able to do a lot more with it. Gotcha. I have to, I have yeah. to watch that one again. I have to also watch Barry Lyndon again. Yeah. I like that one too. 
I know that they were doing a concert at some point that I wanted to go to that where they were showing the film and then they had an orchestra performing the music from the film of Barry Lyndon, which. Oh, wow. That would be interesting. Yeah. That would be I don't know how they would, how they would uh, cut out the soundtrack from the movie without cutting out the dialogue too, but. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <clears throat> I think they made an open source software now to do that. I've been using that sometimes in my editing where somebody has uh, some music in the background that's embedded into something, but they don't have the original files. And um, there's this thing called Splitter where you could actually like split tracks. No kidding. Yeah. It's actually... Just working from one master track? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's not perfect, you know, yeah. but it's pretty good. Wow. It's definitely the, passable. I've never heard of that. What's next on the agenda, Rob? Well, I'm working on a fiction film. I ha- I'm rewriting a, a script that I finished earlier this year. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to, to get that or something else off the ground. Again, I'm, I'm not working on another documentary, but, you know. I'm, Ever again? I'm think- or No, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I'm... I'm just, I don't have the right idea to, to go forward with something, but, um, yeah. yeah, if I, if I had a great idea for a documentary, I would, I would pursue it. But right now I'm working on a, a fiction film. Nice. Well, definitely. I definitely look forward to watching your future works. Thanks, Seth. I appreciate that. And, uh, th- thank you very much for having me on your, your podcast. Yeah. I appreciate you coming through and wh- where could people follow along with you? Are you on Instagram? Are you on, you have a website? Um, I'm on, I'm on Facebook and Twitter through, through the Pauline film. It's what she said, Pauline Kale, but I have, yeah, I'm on Facebook too, Rob Garver. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Rob. Greatly appreciate you being on the podcast. Thanks, Seth. Thank you for listening to the Film Scene Podcast with your host Seth Cota, Executive Producer Jeff Cutler, Producer Melissa Gola, Original Music by Yuri Ryback.